frail and weak and ignorant.
Good morning. Let's go over some announcements. <clears throat> Who will bring any change against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Romans 8, verse 33. Studies and confession, uh, Sunday mornings, Sunday school. Uh, very, very good insight as to how we came about in our faith. And I would encourage everybody to, to make every effort to come out and uh, study with us in this. You, you'll just get so much. Tonight we continue our summer video series on the history of the Reformation. Surprisingly, that kind of ties into our uh, Bible school uh, studies, and it, it, uh, it meshes real well. So come on out for that. We had uh, good eats and, and uh, a good time. Communion next Sunday, no dinner, no evening service. Ba baby bottle drive has ended, but you can still bring your, your bottles in, hopefully loaded with change. <laughs> Men's Bible study, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. at the McLeod home. Prayer meeting, Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, again, uh, there's strength in numbers when we pray together, and I would encourage us to try and, and join together on Wednesday nights whenever we can and, and uh, make that happen. <clears throat> we would like to make a church directory. Uh, we, we're all aware of that. And uh, see George when you have your, your paperwork filled out and make an appointment for pictures. Graduation open house on Saturday, July 1st for Rachel Luke at the Luke home, noon to 4 p.m. Joey Antilla, also graduating in Wisconsin, that's uh, Donovan's grandson. Uh, open House is also there next weekend. Uh, I forget anything? Anybody have any other announcements or any word on uh, Diane Sagal? I know she's been released from the hospital. Uh, anybody have an update on her? Just was said on Wednesday evening that uh, She's doing so well, she's not going on under, there's no more treatments or things of that nature. And, uh, she doesn't need overnight supervision anymore or anything like that. Amen, an answer to prayer. Okay, a scripture for meditation is Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. In a few Bible, that would be page 1757.
Please stand for our opening prayer. Brother Ed Riffle, would you lead us, please? standing as we begin with number 94 in the Trinity. Jared, come and lead us. Ninety-four in the red. Oh. 
585 in the red. <clears throat> okay, why why is this hymn this morning?
Our scripture reading for this morning, taken from the book of 1 John 3, verses 18 through 24. That'll be page 1901 in your pew Bible. And would you stand with me as I read? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. To those who obey his commands, live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. May God add his blessing to this holy and inspired word. Go ahead and be seated. We're going to do a report now from our time at the annual conference. Okay. <clears throat> I'm just going <clears> to <throat> tell you about uh, my own uh, experience down there. Um, we had Dr. Steve Wellam uh, from Southern Baptist. Is that correct, Pastor? Southern Baptist? Yeah. Um, he also teaches at Toronto, I believe, too. Um, and he was speaking on the covenants um, of God. And he dealt with uh, the creation covenant, the Adamic co covenant, uh, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Noah, Noahic, all the all these the covenants, and he was trying to show us uh, through his lectures, and I missed two of them due to baby duty, uh, but uh, show us the continuity there and progressive revelation that God starts with the promise to Adam and Eve that the offspring would come, and and from that point in time, every time we have a new covenant, he adds something new and shows us more. But the thing that was really neat, of course, to me was it's the same covenant. He starts here with Adam, with the fall, and he does it immediately. Adam falls and he sins, and God makes a covenant immediately with him. And then from that point all the way to its culmination at the end, one overarching, tremendous covenant. And, and at different times, as you look at them, God reveals more about who he is and more about who we are, like for instance, with his covenant uh, with Abraham. Where was Abraham when the covenant was being made and, and the covenant row was being walked? He was asleep and God walks the covenant row. Um, that was mentioning to the Sunday school class uh, this morning that there was something that I learned this weekend that I always knew, but God made it clear this weekend that when he makes the covenant, he always attaches something. If you will obey, then this will happen. But if you disobey, then this will happen. Okay, and how many times in the covenants do we read in Scripture did they perfectly obey the covenant? One time. 
And that's when the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant. Every single time, David in his sin with Bathsheba, uh, Moses in striking the rock. I mean, these things that went on, they constantly sinned. Abraham constantly looking for filling the covenant with something else other than the promised seed. Constantly disobeying. And, uh, and God tells him up front, if you disobey, this is going to happen. And those things do happen. But our obedience to the covenant is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it changes it for us that our salvation is not secured in our own obedience. Because history has proven that the human heart cannot obey. But Jesus Christ did. And our obedience to the covenant is found in him. So it was really neat to have that made clear and put in place. That there is an element of obedience there. God's looking for people to obey. And we instantly react to the word obey. We will not have this man to rule over us. That's our heart's natural inclination. To disobey. And if you bristle at the idea of obeying God, then you're just along with everybody else. Because that's what everybody feels. Okay. So that was, that was very neat to see that overarching thing there. And, and the security for this covenant is found in the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ to the command. And he has fulfilled it. And he said, it is finished. It's secure. It's done. Um, tremendous discussion. He, his, um, his lectures were full. Uh, he was, once he got into them, rattling off bits of information. He's a college professor and you felt that you were listening to a lecture there um, and you're trying to get everything down that he's saying at that point and there's not a whole lot of time to process. I think that's indicative of most teachers. They want to pack into their time as much as possible. But he does have a book and I forget the name of the book but I'm going to research it and maybe Pastor will speak about it in a little bit here. Um, and I'm planning on doing that just for my own understanding. Um, I encourage you to go to these as well. Um, we had, my family was down there, and of course, uh, Pastor and my mom were down there. Uh, but just a good time of fellowship with other people, other believers. I was talking with a, a gentleman in, in the church at Hartville, um, Faith Baptist, who had recently started coming to the church, and his eyes were opened when he got there that A, that there was a church that believed like he believed. He was, when he started attending the church, he was happy. Like, wow, people are actually preaching what I know is the truth. I can't believe that. And then to find out that there was more than one church and that other people, he was just spouting on and on about. He said, I just, I just didn't know. And he says, it's really neat to be here and, and, and to know that I can talk to you about things that I believe and hold true and I believe the Bible teaches and, and you do too. Of great encouragement. It's not always about you. Oftentimes it's about the other person. You go there to be an encouragement to others. And in the process, the Lord blesses you as well. I also found out when I was down that this very same gentleman had worked in previous churches with the youth groups. He's looking to be involved with camp and his wife. And they've done winter retreats and all sorts of stuff. And when he found out that the SGBA had those things and then I was in charge, he kind of sought me out. He says, I want to be involved. And I said, okay. I said, what about this summer? I can't. But next summer, yes. So I said, okay. I'm going to hold you to that, so we'll see how things go. But an encouragement to be amongst like-minded believers, yes, it's a sacrifice of time and effort and money to go down there. But the rewards are great. So. I would just amen what Jared said, and 
Dr. Steve Wellam um, is an able expositor of the word, but he was dealing with covenants and all of those referenced from the scripture. And what was neat to hear is how the Lord had planned these things from eternity and was carrying out. You can, he pointed out you can actually cha uh, trace progressive revelation by just studying the covenants. You just study the covenants and it'll take you from Genesis all the way to Revelation and see what God will do. I too got to meet some new people. I got to meet Paul Zaspel. I, I'm, you guys are probably familiar with Fred Zaspel and some of his teaching and so forth. This is Paul, his brother, and he lives mid-Pennsylvania and so forth. First time he was able to come. Why? Because the conference was close enough for him to be able to get away. He is a, a tent-making pastor, as he calls himself. In other words, he has another job that he has to do in order to keep doing the pastoral work. And there's a lot of pastors that are in that category. I've been in that category myself in times past. And it sh shows dedication to the truth. We had about 37 to 40 people at the conference, which is pretty well average for us. Nine churches represented in our association. Got to meet, like Jared says, new people. Uh, there were people from our groups up here, from Swartz Creek uh, area, uh, from uh, other areas in, in uh, A. Lot's church, and he wasn't there, but some of his people were. And so it was good to just be with uh, people of like precious faith and to be able to study the Word of God together. And I so much appreciated the discussion time uh, where we fired our questions and so forth. And what he ended each covenant with the fact is that man had his part to do, but he failed in every one of those covenants all the way through. He, he wouldn't do it or couldn't do it or both. And the fulfillment comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ is the fulfillment of all those covenants. He is the last Adam where it caused the first Adam failed, and so forth. He is new lawgiver in terms of the Mosaic Covenant. He is the great King of kings and Lord of lords, not King David. And on and on and on. It was just absolutely uh, wonderful to see that emphasis upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Culmination. So thank you uh, for the opportunity to go. Please take your red hymnal again, 253, 253. Let's stand again as we sing, please.
By the way, we were meeting in the conference in Ohio in Pastor Tucker's old church. So that would be Faith Baptist of Hartville. And lo and behold, Connie was there. She came up from Missouri where she's been living because of her uh, grandson's graduation. So we got to visit with her and she remembers and reflects upon their times coming to Thornville and uh, that just was icing on the cake. It was very nice. All right, our text this morning is 1 John 3. Been a while since we've been in 1 John because of all the special days. Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, <laughs> weekend, and so forth. And then you throw in um, other uh, things that are going on, and uh, we have the special messages and all of that, then away from 1 John. But we're back today, 1 John 3, and our study is going to be in verses 18 and following. So uh, we have been looking at the last time that the Christian obligation is to love the brethren uh, which every believer is commanded that Christ lay down his life for us and we must do the same out of love for the brethren. And not just be willing to do so, but to actually do it. In many parts of the world, by the way, Christians are laying down their lives literally for their fellow Christians, trusting Christ in faith to make things right. You know, we tend to use affirmation as the criteria for being genuine in the faith. But God doesn't do that. God uses actions. He uses actions. He does not tell us to love the brethren by going over to them and saying, you know, I just wanted to remind you that I love you. I think that'd be nice if we did more, more of that. But that's not what Christ invites us to do. No, the proof of real love is self-sacrifice. We put ourselves... Before, uh, we put others before ourselves in the preference of the advancement of others over our own advancement. And whenever we have the means to alleviate heartache and distress at personal cost, we do it. We do it. Testimony of the people of the biblical days concerning Christians was this. My see how they love one another. Not my, what a great message they're preaching. Wasn't that? It was the fact that in practicality the world saw the difference between themselves and how they related to one another and the Christians, how they related to one another in love. So this is how we're to love one another. It is an unnatural love because the person of the world loves himself above all others. Even in his or her helping of others in philanthropic endeavors, it's to be seen of men. It's to receive the accolades of their peers. God's people are consumed, however, with God's glory, not their own glory. And God is glorified when we love one another as he loved us. That's how we demonstrate the Spirit's love within our heart. Today I want to talk to you about a cleared conscience, cleared past tense. Notice the emphasis on this truth that conscience was burdened with guilt, okay, 
but then was cleared of that guilt. However, we don't always recognize it. So we live in the past where we would not, should not be. We need to rejoice in the grace and forgiveness of God. That's where we should be. And we're going to talk about that today. Father, thank you for your word. It is the touchstone. When we get off on tangents and we get wrong thinking, we are to come back to your word as the touchstone, which means we, we go back to our foundation stone and we say, oh, here's what I should be doing. Here's what the word of God says. And it brings us back and it uh, sharpens us to the task of being obedient to your word and not being governed so much by our feelings. I can say it this way, Lord, our feelings are fickle. Sometimes they approve us of us and other times they condemn us. Paul talks about conscience doing that with the uh, wrong uh, things that conscience can condemn us for. And we, he reminds us that in Christ we are forgiven and cleansed and we don't always see that. We pray, Lord, that you will bless these truths to our heart. We live in difficult days. We live in days in which the persecution of Christians is noteworthy throughout the world, but it's coming to the shores of America, and we need to be alert. Not, you cannot even trust yourself to go through the uh, parking lot of our local malls without fear that somebody's going to just run up hop out of their car and stab you. Lord, this is, was never the case, but it has become the case, even in America. Why? We've pulled away from the gospel, Lord. We've pulled away from Christ, and the teachings of righteousness are scant indeed. We honor you today. We bless you for your word. Teach us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to talk about a cleared, notice past tense, a cleared conscience. Why do we need a cleared conscience? Because, point one in your outline there, there are masters of guilt that we live with that are expert at making us feel guilty. Everything is wrapped around that. Look at verse 20. Whenever our hearts condemn us wow we don't have to go far to find somebody to condemn us our hearts will condemn us why would our hearts condemn us in american colloquialism the heart is used to refer to the affections a defenseless woman is dragged out of a an apartment by the hair by her boyfriend and he starts kicking her and punching her in the parking lot, and the onlookers don't do anything. They don't call 911. They don't try to stop this guy. He's just beating up on her. And when the woman's family members arrive after the beating, they protest, you know, you people have no heart. You people have no heart. Meaning, where is your heart? Where is your compassion? Where's your sympathy? for a defenseless person being beaten to a pole. And the family uses the word heart as referring to affections. Biblically, however, the word heart stands for the totality of a person. 
Affections, yes, but also one's thinking, one's will, one's choices, one's actions. And within context, John has been talking about loving the brethren in such practical ways that we will lay down our life for our brethren, verse 16. When we see a brother in need, we pity him, we help him with our own material goods, verse 17. But even if we do so in these very practical ways, it's possible that our hearts will condemn us because we know we've acted with, can I say it this way, insincerity, or maybe stinginess. Yeah, we helped them, but we just did like a kind of a token uh, thing so that we look good. Or we've acted out of duty, got to do this. Not real love for those hurting. And in this sense, the heart condemning us is the equivalent to a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience. The English word for conscience is a compound word consisting of the word con, C-O-N, which means to study or to know, and the word science, which is knowledge. So conscience is to know knowledge or to be knowledgeable. Strong word. To know right from wrong, to know whether we have done all that is right or have left things undone that should have been done. Conscience will be there. And it is the discrepancy between performance and knowledge which makes us feel guilty. We condemn ourselves for not living up to God's standard in this area of loving one another as we should. We have no peace about it. So the first master of guilt is our own conscience. We do not always live up to what we know to be right. And we're condemned because of that. Secondly, Satan, the accuser, is also a master of guilt. John, our author, wrote in the Revelation... When I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Revelation 12 verse 10. And then within context he names him as that serpent, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth. So the accuser. Satan is a master of guilt because of his accusations. Sometimes the accusations are founded. Often they're unfounded, as in the case of righteous Job, whom God characterized. There's no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job 1, verse 8. We read that, and one would have thought that with such a stellar commendation from God Almighty himself, that Satan would not have had a leg to stand on in laying any guilt at the feet of Job. We would think Satan will just leave Job alone. But this is what Satan said. Oh, 
Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you, God, not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But if you stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, he will surely curse you to your face. Job 1, verse 9 through 11. Here's the translation. Satan is saying to God, Job isn't so righteous as you think. He serves you, yeah, but he serves you for money. You've made him the man with the Midas touch. He's successful in everything. You've made him rich. Who wouldn't be willing to trade allegiance and fidelity to God for being the greatest man among all the people of the East? To quote your own words, God, chapter 1, verse 3. Can you see how bold Satan is? He's right in the face of God. Even when we do well, Satan accuses us, what? Of ulterior and evil motives. He does do that. And we often carry about the burden of his accusations. He is a master of guilt. Thirdly, the world of unbelievers is a master of guilt. Paul, speaking of his own experience as an apostle, wrote, When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Now this was in spite of his testimony. Here it is. This is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationship with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12. Or writing of all Christians, he says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies us. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, oh, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Romans 8, verse 33. So Paul is not suggesting that no one of the world brings charges against us as believers, but he is saying that they cannot bring charges that stick. That is, charges that are incriminating. Because Christ has died and Christ intercedes on our behalf. And he's not even saying that some of the charges wouldn't be right. He's saying that they don't effectively change our relationship to Christ, to God. Peter told his people, Peter now, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it, do it with gentleness, do it with respect, 
keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. 1 Peter 3.15 and 16. Slander is just, what, a bold-faced lie. That's what slander is. And Peter is saying, keep a clear conscience. Because the world is going to speak maliciously. Notice how the words pile up. Maliciously against your good. Maliciously against your good behavior. You'd think if you were doing something good, the world would applaud you. Yay, oh, good, great. Glad you were a big help. No. They slander you instead. So people of the world are masters of guilt. They accuse believers of being hypocrites for some doodad they did. While their whole lives are full of hypocrisy, they twist our words to mean something evil. They malign our good intentions with their own evil motives and slander our good behavior as wicked lies. We hear the guilt their hatred of us produces. So, three things. Our conscience bothers us, and that disturbs our peace because we see ourselves as guilty. Satan accuses us, and the world condemns us. Now, what is the biblical solution to all this guilt which laid on us? And I'm just hitting the tip of the iceberg here. Well, we need to look to the master of a cleared conscience. And I'm going to start with the last master of guilt and work my way back through the text. So we'll talk about the world. What do we do with the world when the world condemns us? When it accuses us falsely? What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is that Christ, our Lord, has overcome the world. Jesus taught his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm so glad Jesus said that. John 16, verse 33. Paul tells us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Good question. And then he begins this montage of all the possible things that people might think would separate us from Christ. How about trouble? Shall trouble? No. Or hardship? How about persecution? Or famine? Don't have anything to eat. Or nakedness? Don't have anything to wear. Or danger? talking to some of the officers of the church just before we prayed tonight, how you need to be conscious that things are happening in our society and people don't need guns anymore. They'll jump out of their car and stab you with a knife. You say, you're trying to scare us. No, I'm just trying to be realistic. There's, it's dangerous to live in a pagan world. 
thing is, America had this great history of Christianity and the teaching of Christianity, but that has waned away. It's not being preached anymore. Not being believed anymore. Doesn't form the basis of our consciousness. So Paul writes, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, however, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verse 35 and following. Peter chimes in, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And he talks about the symbolic baptism that now saves. And he explains it. Not the removal of dirt from the body, not water baptism. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Oh, there's a washing. I want to have a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers and they're all in submission to him. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 and following. <coughs> What he's saying is that Jesus' payment for sin grants us a good conscience. Verse 16, he calls it a clear conscience. Even though the world speaks maliciously against our good behavior and slanders us, Peter says. Can I say it? The world's opinion of you doesn't count a hill of beans with God. Doesn't. Let them say what they will. Let them vilify your motives. Let them malign the good that you do by speaking evil of it. Let them twist the truth and speak evil of your motives. It's no matter. The resurrected Christ, your Savior, who died and has ascended after resurrection, now sits in glory with every authority and power in submission to Him. The world cannot win in this war of words. You are vindicated by Christ himself. He's overcome the world and you along with him. That's a great joy and we need to concentrate on that. So yes, the world is our accuser, but okay, Jesus says, sleep well at night. I've overcome the world. What about Satan? He accuses us. We read in the Revelation that he accuses us day and night. Doesn't sound like he sleeps. And he is the slanderer called that. He brings accusations against us. We're not as righteous in practice as Job was. 
So we give Satan, can I say it this way, much fuel for his fire. Our behavior helps the devil condemn us with just accusations. Did you see what that Pastor Luke did? Did you hear what he said? This master of guilt has no problem digging up the dirt on us. Well, must we then suffer the guilt of his accusations? Is there no help here with this evil one's malicious intent? He means to see us cursed with him. He means to have us ruined in hell with him. He means to have our testimony ruined, our reputation shot, and our allegiance to Christ a mockery to the watching world. That's his agenda. Zechariah was a prophet. He was a contemporary of Haggai. To those Israelites returning to Jerusalem out of the exile. And in speaking with Zechariah, God sent an angel to explain various visions that Zechariah saw. In chapter 3, verse 1 and following, describes one of these visions. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Now this isn't, you know, this isn't Joshua in the days of Moses. This is another guy named Joshua. Common name. By the way, it's the Hebrew word for Jesus. It means the same thing, Savior. So, he then showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see that expression, angel of the Lord, it's a reference to Christ in the Old Testament. These are precarnate experiences of him. Saw him standing there before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. What is Satan doing here? Well, we are told he's standing there ready to Give his indictment, his accusation. Let me read on. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? You think he's going with you, but I've snatched him from the fire. We read on. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him. They clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? 
There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And God did that at Calvary with the branch of Jesse, the Lord Jesus Christ. Zechariah 3, 1 to 9. Now in this account, it shows Satan at the sight of Joshua the high priest, ready and willing to accuse him, to discredit him, to demonstrate that he has no right to be lecturing others on sin when he himself is guilty of so much. And to the devil's credit, verse 5 admits, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And we know from the context that the filthy clothes are symbolic of his many sins. The priest's many sins. Boy, I read that and I must tell you that it's some, something that I struggle with as your pastor. I often think, how can I stand before the people on Sunday morning and say anything about sin when my own life is so defiled by the same sin? I think Satan has a special hatred for prophets and preachers and ministers and missionaries and counselors of others. He knows, as we know, that we have feet of clay. His arrows are aimed at the chink in our armor, and he means to bring us down with the sense of guilt for our own sin. I do know of pastors, I do know of pastors who have given up the pastorate because of this very thing. They, they have just thought, oh, my life is so miserable, I can't speak to others. And in one fell swoop, Satan has moved them out of the way. Maybe he will shame us into not preaching. Or maybe he will so discredit our ministry as to use the people of God to silence our lips because the people won't listen. You know, one of the beauties of the church is that if you're going to have a pastor of a church, you've got to have people that are willing to sit there and listen, or you don't have a church. This is what is going on in this third chapter of Zechariah. Joshua, the high priest, stands there dressed in filthy clothes. His sins are many. And Satan is there to suggest that Joshua is disqualified as a credible priest to intercede for the people. Why would you have this filthy sinner try to intercede for others? He's guilty. He's dead in the water. His ship is a sitting duck for the flaming arrows of the evil one. He has no defense. He'll be shot full of holes and his ship will go down in flames. That's the guy you want to be a prophet, a priest. But just when all this seems to be lost, verse 2 says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick? Snatched from the fire. Yeah. That's what you need to be concentrating on. 
May I say, brethren, that that's all we ministers are. We're just burning sticks snatched from the fire, part of Jerusalem, not because we wished it so, but because God has chosen us to inhabit his city. And as for our sins, your sins included, the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes, verse 4. And then he said to Joshua, as he says to all of us, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And then he said, Put a clean turban on his head, and it was done. And the text reads on, and it tells of one called the branch. The stone whom the builders rejected being set before Joshua symbols all of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom God pledges himself to remove all of our sins, the sins of this land in a single day, which he did at Calvary. Do you know that forgiven sins are forgotten sins? They are. Amen. Amen. Atoned for sins, atoned for sins, are no more sins. And so no more sins cannot be used by Satan to vilify God's people with guilt. Christ Jesus, the branch, is the master who rebukes Satan by snatching us burning sticks from hell's fire and dressing us in the beauty of his righteousness this brings us then to where we began the guilt master of our own conscience well we can get past the world condemning us we can get past satan's accusations against us but here's a biggie can we get past our own guilty conscience Look at verse 20 of our text. Whenever our hearts condemn us. In some ways, the guilt of our own conscience, I think, is the worst of them all. It's worse than that of the accusations of the world. It's worse than that of Satan. I think we can readily dismiss the accusations of unbelievers and of Satan because we know them to have a bias against righteous living. Of course, what do we expect from them? But what we cannot escape, however, is the accusations of our own guilty conscience. Conscience, you remember, is an informed mind. It knows right from wrong, and if a person is born of God, it has been retaught to think and act in godly patterns hitherto unknown and unpracticed. Yet struggle as we do with the mortification of sin in our heart, of hearts, we know, we know that we are still full of failure. We know we're sinners. We know that we're still liable to disobedience. I think we know ourselves better then we know Satan or the world. And that can contribute greatly to a sense of guilt and shame. So what's John's solution for our own sense of failure? Verse 20. 
Whenever our hearts condemn us, we ought to remember God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Whatever you think you know about yourself, God knows more. Whatever you think is known only to you in terms of your sin, God knows every sin in your life that you have committed or will commit. Let me read some scriptures for you. Psalm 90, verse 8, the psalmist says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, into the light of your presence. That's scary. Do I really want my secret sins to be seen by God? The light of his presence? The psalmist says, well, like it or not, that's what goes on. Or listen to Jeremiah. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, says God? Do do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 24. Is there a hiding place you can go? Where God can't see you and your sin and what you're up to? A cave, a hole in the ground, or what? A deep forest? Your lonely place where you think is very private and not lonely to God. He sees it. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's a scary verse. That is a scary verse. Everything's uncovered. Everything's laid bare before his eyes. Well, why don't you think about this? It can be scary. But it can also be a blessing. You say, I don't get that. How can it be a blessing? Well, to world, to the world, this is a frightening disclosure. You mean God sees everything I do? He knows everything? To us, the omniscience of God is a blessing and a comfort. You say, well, how so? Because not one sin has escaped his perusal nor the cleansing of Christ for that sin. There's the the omniscience of God working in our favor. What? He sees it all, yes, but he's born it all at Calvary. He who reveals all atones for all, and there's no sin left to condemn us. Paul writes, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit and of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Romans 8, the first three verses. I haven't really thought about this much, but we need to think about it. 
the fact that God sees all of our sin and has seen it all means he died for it all and we're safe in Christ loved by Christ forgiven in Christ wow what a savior now that brings us to the second part of our outline confidence before God confidence not based on pride and arrogance like the world Confidence based on a clear conscience. Verse 21. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Well, how is it that our hearts would not condemn us when John just wrote, whenever our hearts condemn us? Well, John is moving progressively through this, his thought patterns here. He knows that there will be times when our conscience is not clear and we will be, can I put it this way, self-condemned. We will beat up on ourselves. Why did I do that? Why did I, do, why did I say that? But he has just shown us that one of the ways we may set our hearts to rest in the presence of God is when we love one another with actions and in truth. Verse 18, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. Verse 19, God's people do the work of God in obedience to Christ. And that sets our hearts at rest. But more, even if our heart does condemn us, verse 20, God is greater than our hearts. Oh, oh, okay. He knows every black mark. He has erased every last one in the blood of his son, leaving us with a clear conscience. The writer of Hebrews makes a big point of this. He says that the gifts and sacrifices being offered by the priests of the Old Testament times were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipers. Chapter 9, verse 9. Why? Because the blood of goats and bulls sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. He's saying it was for looks. It was for symbolism. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience? From acts that lead to death. What are they? Those are sins. So that we may serve the living God. He is saying the sacrifice of Jesus was not ceremonial. It actually cleansed us of sin that leads to death. Thus not just clean externally, but a clean or clear conscience being the result. Now the outgrowth of this clear conscience is that we receive from God, verse 22, anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. The writer of Hebrews echoes the same thought, writing, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled 
to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, verse 19. People with a guilty conscience are timid or reserved or altogether neglectful about prayer. They do not praise because they are guilt-ridden about their sin. Well, if that's you, you need to see that if you are in Christ, he has borne all the guilt of every sin you ever committed or will commit. And remember that he knows all, and he has therefore atoned for all. Secondly, a life of obedience is the second trait of a person confident before God. Look at verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And verse 22 lists the two commands that you need to be concerned with. Continue to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ, yes, and love one another as he commanded. So the two commands is what's always been taught by Christ. Faith in Christ, love for his people. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. and Love your neighbor as yourself. When a believer truly sees his or her sin, they may conclude that there isn't one service for Christ they could perform properly. They're defeated before they begin. But if you can see Christ as the master of the cleared conscience, you will see yourself as forgiven, cleansed, a vessel made fit for the master's use. Your prayer life will change and your service life will also change. God has chosen you unto himself and not the world's criticism, not your own guilty heart, not Satan's slander. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 verse 39. Nothing, nothing. Jesus said it best. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Oh, I and the Father are one. We're one. We're in agreement. John 10, 27 through 30. So we do have masters of guilt that keep needing us stirring up the pot, so to speak, making us feel rotten inside because of our failures and sin. But we have the great master of the cleared conscience, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he has done in his work at Calvary is effective and it's final and it is complete. Not one sin has escaped his payment. So we're in Christ. We're his child. 
Do we still sin? Yeah. But the day's coming when we won't. Oh, Jesus, bring that on quick in our sinful and wicked world. Father, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. I thank you for John, this elder apostle here, who in late life is writing this letter. He's writing it to believers who are struggling with things like a guilty conscience and ongoing sin that plagues them and bothers them. And the world accuses and Satan accuses and their own conscience accuses. And they don't know where they stand sometimes, but they should know. And that's what John is writing about. You should know where you are in Christ. You need to be reminded of what Christ has done for you. And it wasn't just temporary. It was for all of eternity. He gives to us eternal life. He's not going to take it back. He's not taking it away from us. He has paid the price for our sins. Yes, we sin, but we're forgiven sinners. And I pray for each one here that doesn't know Christ. Lord, find them today. Convince them in their heart that they need Jesus as Savior. They need this one who is the master over all of our guilt and sin. He's defeated the world and he's defeated Satan. And in the believer, he's defeated even our guilty conscience. That needs to be for everyone here today. And we pray that. Firstly, for your own glory and for our good. For we are best blessed when we're in right standing and at peaceful standing with you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the red hymn. We're going to sing 305. Jared's going to come and lead us in our final hymn. Three hundred five in the red hymnal. Arise, my soul, arise. This is a, a hymn of uh, hope. Let's stand, please. Oh, for
was the great truths of the gospel that brought the reality to people's lives that their own works was not the way to please God and earn salvation. They needed God's grace. God's grace. Our series in the evening is on the Reformation and how that came about. Liars began to stand in the pulpits and preach gospels that were not gospels. And the Reformers came to the fore and they started attacking the church false gospel teachers and presented the gospel of truth in terms of what we call Reformation truths. Tonight, we're going to learn about Erasmus, what a rascal he was, versus Luther. Sometimes you got a battle in a one-on-one -on -one with the pagans and the heretics. And Luther said, you know, Erasmus, you're wrong. And they debated it, and the church stood with Luther. Praise the Lord. See you tonight, 6 o'clock. Yeah.